Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Yeah, I know. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit means Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. with Atlantic the show where we look at the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. I'm Royful Brown still with these folks in Birmingham in lockdown in the middle of the world's worst pandemic since hmm, 1919. Today we are joined by TV pundit Laura Babcock in Hamilton, journalist Emma Burnell in London and by the Hellraiser, the Firestarter, the guy who can buy you a good pair of glasses, Doug Levy in San Francisco. Say hello folks. Hello, good to see you. In a week that has seen baseball return to the sporting calendar, we ask if Canadians are bored of the Canadian Conservative Party. But before um, we delve into that weighty topic of the Canadians and the Conservative Party, Laura Babcock over there in Hamilton, Ontario, I believe we received an interesting email from last uh, week's show. Yes, so you're bringing me back to my old newsreader days that I did very briefly and very poorly, I might add. I, I sucked at it. Uh, hey, Royfield, just finished listening to the most recent Mid-Atlantic with Laura Babcock, Emma Burnell, and Jared Kobeck. You've given it the episode number 107, but you gave the previous episode the same number. Really enjoyed it, as always. <laughs> I'm not going to edit this for you, Royfield, right? <laughs> <laughs> a really petty point. At one stage, you made the argument that Canada was distinctive in the Anglosphere for its sensible dealing with debt, etc. I should go back and listen to get the wording exactly right, but I'm lazy. I love this listener, right? They're awesome. I'm not that familiar with Canada, but a lot of what you and Laura had to say sounded very similar to Australia and New Zealand, bracket, which, to be clear, is not an endorsement of Australia's current government, just that we've had the good fortune to be in a similar economic position as Canada. Consequently, despite the best pre-COVID efforts of our Conservative government, the opposition and the cross-benchers in the Senate have managed to maintain our welfare state relatively intact, giving the aforementioned government the necessary instruments to guide us through the current crisis. So. It made me wonder whether you're really talking about the Anglosphere, 
parentheses, which would have to include India and large sections of Africa as well as the Australasia, or whether you're really addressing the Anglophone Atlantic, which would be fair enough. After all, it's what the program's about. Perhaps though, we should be looking at the US and the UK as the outliers, not Canada. Anyway, just a thought, and that's all the best from Sasha, an awesome, obviously, listener viewer from Australia. Uh, just quick, quickly to answer that, uh, Sasha is utterly uh, a slip of the tongue. And as somebody who has Jamaican parents, when people have talked about the English-speaking world before, uh, generally uh, it excludes uh, people who are black but speak English as a mother tongue. So the fact that I made that slip is somewhat ironic, considering I, I rail against it, I'm re really sensitive to it. Um, though, as a slightly wider point, I think really what, what I meant was the Atlantic world, uh, the Northern Atlantic world. And yes, New Zealand and to a slightly lesser degree, Australia are known for their financial prudence. Uh, but that's really what I meant. But dare I say it, when you're speaking sometimes without necessarily always checking what you're saying, your mouth runs away with you and you, you, you come up with the odd occasional slip. I think that's reasonable. I mean, podcasting is such a funny old medium, isn't it? Because we do just chat as if as if we were old mates. Hopefully we are all old mates. But, you know, that does then lead to a much more relaxed language than you would use if you were doing a TV or radio show. Well, I was just going to say, even on TV and radio, uh, for those of us who do a ton of it, it's, you know, you're talking all day to a whole bunch of people. It's easy to make mistakes. I've certainly made many. I could write a book on it. So <laughs> that's my two cents. I once referred to John McDonnell as Jeremy Corbyn's busy mate on Sky News. <laughs> so, you know, we all do it. <laughs> I, I think having listeners point these things out, though, is actually kind of helpful because... Oh, absolutely. We, we don't always realize that we use language that we think others shouldn't. And we, think, we, use, we occasionally use language that we don't think we should use. It's ingrained. And yeah. something that I actually am kind of hopeful about is that we are becoming more aware of this. And I mean, yesterday I had a, on social media, uh, it started out as a bit of a hostile exchange, but it wound up in a really good place where um, there was a discussion about um, ethnic stereotypes in commercial branding. And somebody was saying, it's like, you know, I'm done with the PC stuff. This is ridiculous, whatever. And a couple of us helped this individual understand what was offensive about these terms that we've used for years. And she actually got to the place where she kind of saw it and acknowledged what we were saying. And that's a win. That is a really interesting example because that is almost the opposite of what normal ha normally happens on social Absolutely. media. Absolutely. Which would be fair, like a whole bunch of people to pile on that woman, make her more and more curled up and defensive, you know, emotionally, intellectually, you know, build a shell around herself and learn nothing. And it's so much better to actually just speak to people where they are calmly, friendly, and find common ground and expand it rather than simply attack, 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 which is what, you know, I mean, we've all had that moment on Twitter. <laughs> I do love Sasha's letter. And why I love it is that uh, it had grace in it, right? It Absolutely. Said, 
within the context, what did it really mean? And, you know, as someone who talks for a living, when people hear something out of context or in a snippet, uh, it can be very difficult. And you don't want to explain if you've made a mistake, but at the same time, you're like, but the context is this. So I love that Sasha put it in context and Royfield, you were able to speak to it in context. And I think that's how we learn from each other. In terms of PC versus whatever else, what my, my rule of thumb is, is it going to hurt somebody? If I use this word, even if it means nothing to me, will it cause pain to somebody else? And I'm not in the business of causing pain. So I don't want to hurt anybody. If it's something I got to scrub from my vernacular, consider it scrubbed, right? And one other thing about social media, I did have some exchanges this past week, as always, with some people who are pretty upset and come at you pretty strong. And what I find is if I just say, I hear you, I understand where your point is coming from. Uh, and here's where I am on this and why. And once you give that little bit of time instead of that reactionary, I could shut you down fast and get all my, my followers to pile on you, uh, you tend to have the person come back and go, okay, like, can't we just agree to learn from each other? <laughs> you know, we got so many other big problems. <laughs> that is a perspective we need to learn. And when I teach you know, emergency responders how to communicate in a crisis, one of the things that I try very hard to get these people to understand is that you're going to be talking to people who may not even like you, but it's an emergency. They have to trust you. So if they don't trust you from the start, you need to know that and acknowledge that gap. And one of the best ways to do that is to start off to saying, it's like, Hey, I, I hear your questions. I understand you're afraid here's what we are doing here's what you need to do can i just bring up one quick thing Doug? because your advice is so good and respect is the core so i just have to say just i know this isn't on the topics where i feel but i think you guys will appreciate this so uh you know we talked about the defund the police movement uh, over these podcasts and how it really is about examining these budgets and looking at reallocating and and what policing role all that stuff right so um, in our city, where it was the most racist city in Canada, statistically, and we've had all kinds of issues with white supremacy and poli- uh, there's been a mess and a lot of distrust with police. Uh, a group yesterday, because the police services board really wasn't hearing them and even wanting to look at defunding even 10% or whatever, they painted defund the police, much like the Black Lives Matter in Washington. And uh, rather than give them the respect, uh, Doug, that you're talking about of the mayor or anybody coming out and saying, can we have a conversation about this? Why is it, you know, were you planning on removing it at some point if we can have a discussion? You know, it's a peaceful artistic uh, protest. They instead blocked traffic, uh, hosed it down immediately and sort of blamed the protesters for the traffic problems. And you know what, the response on, so talk about an unforced error, the response on social media about you didn't even come out and talk to them. You didn't even leave it for 20 four hours, you know, uh, to have a discussion. It just looks terrible, right? I, I, like no respect at all, not even to have a conversation. I had to bring that up. I'm upset about it. I'm disgusted. Well, and, and I mean, what you're, sh- what you're reflecting there is a government, it sounds like, where they're affirmatively saying that the people who have complaints about the police services don't count. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Which just uh, exacerbates it more. Now I'm more supportive of their of their endeavors to get accountability and change in the police because they didn't even get the respect of five minutes. I mean, what other city has hosed it down as soon as the art goes up? <laughs> you know what? Why? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, what, what's interesting in the United States is that although obviously the, uh, there's a lot of tension and it's not necessarily getting better. I, so just full disclosure, I'm actually 
a member of one of the large police associations because I've worked with emergency services over the years, but I'm not, I'm not a police officer, never have been. I've always been one of the people to connect the police with the community. That's my role. Um, but through that association, I'm aware of more than a few police departments that have actually not only been um, supportive of what people are claiming, uh, clamoring for now, but in some cases did it before. Uh, there's one department in Illinois that actually gave up some of its funds that had been earmarked for sworn officers with badges and guns and allocated that money towards social services. And my precinct in New York, we actually had a full-time social worker assigned to the domestic violence team because having people with badges and guns knock on the door is not necessarily the right response especially first time when there's a problem. Sometimes you need it. You know what I love about this, right? So we've gone from talking about uh, the Anglosphere and what truly it means through to um, political correctness and really what that means, which is uh, civility and realizing that words can be used as a weapon. So um, being conscious of other people's reception of those words through to defunding the police, freedom of protest and freedom of expression. What a wonderful, great uh, panel I have with me that we can be so lucid and go from one topic to another. I think what we, uh, what we saw tonight was a range of ideas on important subject matters from the economy to veterans to the environment to how we come out of COVID-19 with specific plans to rebuild our economy, respecting the, the um, rights of uh, Canadians and the, and the rights of provinces. I was here for a debate tonight. Mr. McKay just kept speaking uh, to, to the microphone. I was here to actually debate uh, issues of importance to Quebec. It's actually really been a divisive tactic for members of his team to send out notes criticizing the fact that I have a platform on the environment, uh, on Quebec. Uh, do we want to win the next election or not? So I was here to debate. Well, I I didn't say where someone should rank um, anyone because I, I think that all the candidates are still getting to know each other's platform. And um, what I did say is that people who are social conservatives are very much in line with, um, with either myself or Derek Sloan. And so I would think naturally that we would, that they would um, rank us uh, first or second on their ballot because we do align with their values. Laura, over to you in Hamilton in uh, Ontario. Why has the Canadian Conservative leadership race failed to excite the imaginations of your fellow Canadians? That's a big question. The reason why the Conservatives people thought uh, couldn't really win the last election in spite of Trudeau's scandal around SNC-Lavalin, which was significant, was because they seem to be pulled to their social conservative base, which wants to reopen the abortion debate and is not a fan in any way of any kind of plan for climate change. Uh, and, you know, they really couldn't get it together on that front. 
And so then the leader at the time who was not charismatic at all, in fact, he won his strategy for winning the leadership was to say, I know I'm not the guy you want, but just try to give me your second ballot vote. <laughs> right? I mean, that was his strategy. So as pragmatic Canadian as you can get, I suppose, Roy Field, to your point from last podcast. So, uh, so that's how he went. So he was hardly going to keep the Conservative Party front and center and exciting. And then during the COVID thing, they seemed to have nothing but little petty snipes when we were all in crisis. And that didn't bode well for their brand. Now they have something they can really get to Trudeau on and they're, you know, they're starting to flex their muscles on that. There's a charity, the We Charity, there's a big scandal in Canada about that. But, you know, even Emma's yawning listening to this summation of it. Sorry, it's I'm very no, 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 but it's true. Right? You can't help yourself. And that yawning is a herd thing. So we're probably all going to want to yawn soon. Anyway, um, but the point is, is that it's boring, right? And so the race itself now, the only really... I think the only person who's going to be marketable to Canada in a general election is Peter McKay, because there's kind of a romantic history with him. Uh, you know, he had a high-profile parliamentary girlfriend across the floor and broke his heart, and there's, like, pictures of him with his dog in mourning years ago. I mean, he's the romantic, charismatic type. Uh, and so he probably would win right now if it were a general. The only second person who might take the votes on the second ballot is a guy named Aaron O'Toole, who, you know, is more conservative-leaning, and he spent his time, you you know, accusing McKay's campaign of data and taking data. And it's petty. It's silly. We're in the middle of COVID. You know, we have bigger issues. So unless they can find substantive things to talk about, maybe this charity scandal is, is, a, is a good uh, way for them to focus. It doesn't seem to Canadians like there's much more than a two-horse race. Uh, there are two other people in it, but, you know, I don't think uh, they've got a shot. So, and we probably think McKay's going to ultimately win and maybe give Trudeau a run for his money. But if he's going to do that, All he's right. got a tight game. All right, right. Now, that was a masterful answer, right? But um, with the rise of Wexit, is that really a bigger issue uh, for the Conservatives uh, than their squabbles? Because all I'm reading about in the Canadian media is that ah, these guys are kind of squabbling over nothing, whatever. Is is the rise of the Wexit party uh, something which the Conservative Party as a whole should be much more concerned about as opposed to whoever wins the leadership race? And, And then please tell us, um, exactly the grievance that Western Canada has, uh, some Western Canadians have with, with the rest of Canada, hence the rise of the Wexit Party. So the Wexit Party is an iteration of earlier Western parties or, or Western interests, right? We had the Reform Party, which then kind of brokered itself into the Conservative Party. Uh, so when you look at Canada, if you, I think the easiest way to describe, and I've lived in Winnipeg, which the West wouldn't consider West, they'd consider it central, uh, but I have spent time out West. And if you look at it, our geography, it kind of tracks north-south. You know, you've got the mountains that run through BC and into the west, the far, the west coast. You've got the prairies. You've got the oil interests, very cattle. Rain. You've got very similar interests geographically north, south in Canada. So for a long time, you could get the very strong feeling, and especially um, Saskatchewan, Alberta, that their interests lined up very much with those northern states in those areas. And so they felt very different on all kinds of levels, culturally and everything else, from eastern Canada, which is much, or not even far eastern Canada, but I'm talking about like central Canada, Ontario, uh, which is really like New York. Do you know what I mean? Toronto is like New York City, a little cleaner and smaller, but it's, it's very New Yorkish, right? And Montreal and stuff. So they've never quite felt 100% 
the same culturally, and that's great. We've got a lot of cultural diversity in this country. But when you look at Trudeau's father's legacy of taking, you know, sort of the boom dollars, the petrol dollars from the West and making the rest of Canada get a piece of that, they hate the Trudeaus out there. Uh, you know, so it, it's always felt as though Ontario is maybe the economic banking center, uh, West is the petrol dollar center, the oil center, and they, oftentimes one feels as though the other's taking advantage. So I'm sympathetic to the Wexit vibe and to that. I lived in Quebec when they wanted to separate because they felt so distinct from the rest of Canada with their culture. Canada's a big, big, big country geographically. We're very different across this country. I don't think the Wexit thing will morph into much other than it may get a little bit more attention on Western issues during a general election. That's probably their best bet. I don't think there's going to be any break off. I mean, who knows? But, uh, you, you know, the Conservative Party of Canada has always had that tension. Are you a Toronto Bay Street Conservative or are you an Alberta Conservative like Stephen Harper from Calgary? Uh, but just one thing, though, that if you're if you specifically if you're looking at those um, Western towns in a general election, if the Wexit party, which is fundamentally a right wing uh, party, right of centre, sorry, we'll call it right wings, right of centre, their natural voters actually are conservatives, aren't they? And it's and it's unlike the SNP in in the in I've got to say in the United Kingdom within Scotland. Let, let's be really quite specific. There are a party who wants to leave uh, the United Kingdom, but are economically and politically left of centre. So. You could you could surely see a, a, a situation that even with a small uh, swing to the Wexit Party within Western Canada, that could actually decimate uh, the Conservative Party there and actually lead to a liberal romp in those places. I don't know that there'd ever be a liberal romp in uh, Alberta <laughs> as long as Trudeau is on the ballot. <laughs> let's, let's, like it, it runs deep, the animus there. Uh, and and he, when he decided he was going to run for prime minister years ago, the first place he went was Calgary to just go into you know the, the place that disliked him the most. Strategically a tough thing, but a smart thing to do. I don't think it'll be a rough, but does the Conservative Party of Canada always have to deal with that tension between uh, the East and the West? Yes, they very much do, whereas the Liberal Party really doesn't have that. Uh, and also, do they have to deal with the social conservative pull, which is a really big thing, right? Canadians don't want to revisit the abortion debate. There's been polls on that. Canadians really want a green strategy of some kind. And when the Conservatives can't come up with that and they just fight carbon tax, it's not a winning strategy for them. So Peter McKay or Aaron O'Toole, who whoever I think gets the leadership in August, uh, they are going to have to constantly rein in those disparate parts of the party to have any shot at a cohesive message and platform that will resonate with Canadians. Uh, so it's not saying they can't do it. There are people who really dislike Trudeau, but they've, you know, they, they are a fractured house, you know, and a house divided often falls. I, I did kind of mention this beforehand, and I said that a lot of the commentary which I've been uh, reading is said that basically the difference between O'Toole and McKay you can describe it as narcissism with minor differences. You know, there kind of isn't anything there. Um, but I was quite interested to read that the two other candidates, one of them is um, is a black woman, another one is a white dude, but they are in subtle ways trying to out-conservative um, the two kind of front runners. So uh, before, before we leave Canada, um, tell us about them and tell us specifically about th those policies which they are trying to, you know, push the Conservative Party maybe slightly right, other than uh, maybe the abortion issue. Yeah, so there's uh, the, the woman who's running is a Toronto lawyer, but hasn't run 
for elected office before. So obviously there's, it's very difficult to uh, be able to get anywhere, even though she might be fantastic when you've got two powerhouses like O'Toole and, and McKay who are parliamentarians, right? They have the national profile. Uh, so she's running, and then there's uh, the other gentleman that you mentioned who's uh, from an area of Durham, more of a sort of a farm area. So social conservatism, for instance, LGBTQ is not even a conversation that the gentleman who is running social conservative from Durham even wants to acknowledge, you know what I mean? They are, they're social conservatives. And in Canada, there is very little appetite for social conservatism. Conservatism around spending, especially with the hitting maybe that that specter of the trillion dollar debt uh, is, I think there's traction there for fiscal conservatism. Uh, this law and order stuff, if, it, if Trump's attempt to create this kind of sense of this chaos that's gonna affect suburbia, that might play well, maybe, in the next federal election here. Uh, but those two candidates are probably a little bit out of the playbook of some people who were running provincially, actually, uh, who were pushing real social conservative values. It, it helped them get some base support. It, it made them kind of relevant for a bit. But again, that's just in the leadership. Once you get out to the general public, I don't think it's going to do anything. Not in Canada. We're, we're just not a socially conservative country by nature. Fiscally conservative, socially liberal, that's kind of where most Canadians Boris Johnson says the response to the coronavirus pandemic shows the UK is a fantastically strong institution. Speaking today on his first visit to Scotland since the general election, he promised to be a prime minister for every corner of the UK. But his trip comes as some polls suggest growing support for independence. There's also a significant gap between his approval ratings and those of Scotland's first minister, Nicola Sturgeon. Here's our Scotland editor, Sarah Smith. Boris Johnson is, he stresses, the Prime Minister for every corner of the United Kingdom. He's come all the way to Orkney to make that point. With crab fishermen in Stromnet Harbour, he's here to highlight what he calls the sheer might of the UK Union and his government's economic response to coronavirus. What I'm saying is that the union is a fantastically strong uh, institution. It's helped our country uh, through thick and thin. Uh, it's very, very valuable in terms of the, uh, the support we've been able to give to everybody throughout all uh, corners of the, of the UK. Emma, Nicola Sturgeon is incredibly popular. She is the First Minister of Scotland and she is the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party. Why is she so popular? And B, why would the Scots ever want to leave the United Kingdom? She's popular for the same reason the Scots might well want to leave the United Kingdom. And, and polling has shown um, quite consistently for some time now a majority for independence, you know, an over, well over 50% um, majority for independence in Scotland. And it's a confluence of, of other things. Sometimes it's a positive um, vote for civic nationalism. Um, there's a very strong Scottish identity and they do feel that that's a very separate identity from the British identity. Um, but also, you know, Scots have had Tory governments that they haven't voted for imposed upon them for ages. Uh, they had austerity for 10 years imposed upon them that they'd never voted for. Um, they voted to remain in the European Union. And if they are faced with an economic choice between a UK that they see plunging themselves into economic disastrous territory through Brexit and particularly through a no deal or a very light deal Brexit 
or becoming an independent country and hopefully then rejoining the EU, um, that could be very attractive to them. Um, you can, and Nicola Sturgeon has managed to navigate being the grown-up in the room between not only Boris Johnson and Jeremy Corbyn and being a very attractive alternative to both of those, but also being the attractive grown-up next stage of her party from Alex Salmond, who was the previous leader of the SNP, who was a very, very, although she was his protege, um, you know, they have very much separated into two separate camps within the SNP. And certainly on the larger stage, she's the one who looks like the diplomat and he's the one doing packages for RT. Mm. Um, we have, there is a separatist trend, um, I was going to say throughout Europe, but let's say uh, on both sides of the Atlantic, um, whether it's the Basques in Spain, in southern France, the Catalans um, in, in Spain. Uh, just in the last t- 10 plus years, we've had Montenegro split from Serbia. How much of the Scottish drive for independence is anti-British or of the moment. And then I'm going to come back over to you, Laura, to specifically to talk about Quebec here, because in this globally much more interconnected world, um, it almost seems counterintuitive that we have the rise of independence movements. I said almost, Laura, you're shaking your head. I like it when you disagree with me before I even Finish the words out of my mouth. So, um, again, fundamentally, how much of this is anti-just central government, almost regardless of where that central government is? How much of this is um, specifically uh, situational? Discuss. So I think there's a combination of factors. I disagree with you about the interconnected world issue because I think that what has happened is that we have an interconnected world financially and we have financial systems that seem to be so embedded, too big to fail. Um, you can tinker around the edges, you can build a, a welfare state within your nation, but ultimately you're not going to change the financial system. Even, you know, even nominally communist countries like China are essentially operating a form of capitalism, whatever else they do in terms of their social um, perspective. So, but so we have this interconnectedness, and what's happened with that almost settled narrative? I think people do kick against it and rail against it, but they rail against it rather than railing for something else a lot of the time. Is that they found other things to, to differentiate themselves, and this is why around the world we've fallen into a much stronger form of identity politics. And much kind of, this is what differentiates me from you. This is what makes me different from you. This is what makes the English different from the Scots or the Scots different from the English. Um, This is what makes Canadians different from Americans. These are our national characteristics and we are so proud of them and they are individual to us. And I think in, at least in part, this real rise of that kind of identitarian politics is because of the interconnectedness of the financial systems and the you know this sense that there's this small very very elite group of people who don't see any of that at all so it's railing against them and it's railing against the system that seems to be no no matter where you go the system is the same 
So what makes you different? What makes you stand out? What makes you an individual? Or what makes your country? And, you know, patriotism is quite a natural impulse. There are some on the left who wish it weren't. I'm not one of them, to be honest. I, I think that the way that I practice patriotism is to say, I love my country. How do I make it better? And that's why I get involved in politics. But there are others who find patriotism to be too close to nationalism, too close to jingoism. Um, so, you know, that is an argument that happens regularly on the left. But I, um, I think that this is, that, you know, this is about trying to find that search for identity that can be closely hung on a flag. Um, and if that flag isn't about how you manage your finance, it's about how you manage society. You bring up so many thoughts. You know, I was just thinking that in Canada for the longest time, we had like this identity crisis where we didn't want to assert we had national characteristics because it seemed too bold to do so, right? And there was actually a silly commercial. It sounds so funny. 15 years ago or so, uh, Molson Canadian, a beer company, put out an I am Canadian thing that went through the Canadian stereotypes and owned them. And that kind of became our Canadian culture from a beer. It's pretty funny. Um, and I caught hell from my cousins in Cleveland who are very much anti-Trumpers and can't wait to, for the election because I actually posted a, an editorial cartoon that had a Canadian beaver holding the border. This is when we announced we're still keeping the border closed to the U.S., holding the border closed. And behind it, you saw COVID and sort of Trump's Gestapo, right? And the idea that Canadians are like, oh, my God, no, we can't have that. Uh, and I don't want to be xenophobic and I don't want to be nationalist. So there, there's that line. Between, and I said to my cousin, you know, honestly, I love Americans. You know that. And I don't think that Canadians are inherently any better than any American. I think we're a little different culturally. And you guys have a lot of things. You have the Nobel Prize winners and you've got you know, entrepreneurial and I, I'm a PR person. I love how you guys brag. You're great at owning your stuff. I love Americans. I've often admired their culture. Just right now, they pose an actual existential threat to Canadians and, and we just can't have our neighbor. And I said, you know, if my neighbor's house is on fire, I'm going to care. <laughs> you know, I'm going to try to get away from it. Anyway, uh, so to the point about these Brexit movements, these separation movements, when I was a child in Quebec was the first referendum. I remember I had a sticker in my in my sticker album at the time that said what they know um and i think with quebec if you were to go to montreal compared to any other canadian city you feel like you instantly are in europe if you go to quebec city the oldest walled city in north america you feel like you're actually in europe it is very different there and other elements of their culture their their common law it's just different and so the distinct society clause is stuck in the craw of a lot of canadians it was part of the meach lake accord it was part of trying to recognize quebec's differences uh, so we've gone through a lot with Quebec. I think, like many things, not to oversimplify it, because there's lots going on there. Um, but I think it's also about respect, right? Central governments become offensive to different groups when they stop respecting the needs of those groups and the differences of those groups. And, and so I think when we can manage to be respectful as i'm trying to be here on this conversation about wexit i don't you know a lot of people just you know just diminish them and call them all kinds of names i don't want to do that you know they have they have legitimate feelings of not being respected and not being seen and we're all human and at the end of the day i find in conflict resolution i do a lot of crisis conflict stuff if you can see them 
and respect them and try to understand their frame of reference, uh, then oftentimes you can find something that, that kind of can bridge it, not heal it, but bridge it. We had a second referendum uh, attempt in Quebec that got very close. It was nail biting back in the 90s. Uh, we had a, at that time a prime minister from Quebec, Jean Chrétien, who, you know, he was, he was about as direct as you can get. Uh, and he did some things to try to hold the country together that were controversial, but essentially it worked. So will Quebec always have a sense of we're different than Canada and we could go it alone? Probably. Will the West always feel like they could wex it or reform or whatever else? The reform didn't want to separate. They wanted to just change the conversation, I think. And I'm, again, I'm simplifying. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's about really looking at diversity and saying it's okay to be different. It's okay to be different geographically, culturally, uh, as long as we are all sharing the common wealth. And I don't mean the Commonwealth Games, like the actual, if we're sharing the public purse federally, I think we can get over a lot of things. Doug, um, a question, question for you before we come back on to uh, Emma, specifically looking at um, Scotland. Specifically looking at the issue of monuments and them defining a sense of southern identity, heritage, um, and the separateness, the distinctness of, let's say, southern culture from uh, the rest of American culture. How important is it that, would you say, that these statues are being pulled down of these old Confederate soldiers? And for me, the link is obviously the Confederacy tried to split away. It was um, a, a form of, of exit. Just can't think of what, what letters I should, should, should put before that. How important is it that um, we replace various obvious totems of regionalism, of difference, with something else which is less divisive and which is more communal. And then, and then where does that intersection sit with, with, with nationality? Because, you know, you can be a proud West Coast person, you can be a proud Southerner, but you still are American. So where, where does that intersection sit? And, we, you know, because we live in a, an unprecedented time in terms of redefining what it means to be Southern within the United States, at least the symbols of it. Well, I think that's a very important point. It's the symbolism. There's a big difference between culture. So, for example, if I am being served a meal in Atlanta or rural Georgia, anywhere in the South, and you know, odds are, instead of oatmeal, I'm going to be served grits, and they're going to be really good very different, you know, grits might be on the menu in California, but nobody in California knows how to make grits unless they were taught by somebody in the South. That's culture. The Confederate monuments are not culture per se. They are actually symbols of hate. And I mean that very literally. If they were legitimately erected as memorials to people who fought to defend their communities in the Civil War. I mean, you don't normally erect monuments for the, the people who rebelled against the country, but, but let's just suppose a community wanted to just honor their war dead. I don't think many people would have a problem with that. But the monuments that are coming down now, finally, were not erected in the years after the Civil War. They were mostly erected in the 1940s, and some of them even later than that, as symbols of 
the Jim Crow era, symbols of hate. Imagine if you are an African-American who has business in the North Carolina State House. You must walk up to an enormous statue saluting the Confederate general who led the North Carolina militia. And it is glorifying the people who were fighting to preserve slavery. I get that, Doug, and I completely and utterly agree, right? But the question is, without rehashing that, is how important is it that the South creates new symbols and then America creates new new symbols uh, which still recognize Southern heritage in a very visible way? And then where does that sit in terms of national kind of identity? And that's more of a uh, an academic construct there. So it's still then potentially applies to Canada and its Quebecar or the United Kingdom with its uh, movement in Scotland to get independence, you know? So there's, there's, there's two things, you know, fundamentally. So celebrating, celebrating the heritage, celebrating the culture, celebrating the diversity is completely fine. That is what makes America great. Celebrating or saluting or honoring political factions that went against what the United States stands for is a whole different thing. So, um, you know, we have one flag. The idea that it's only now that the military of the United States is establishing that we have only one flag for the military. I mean, that's kind of crazy, but finally we're getting there. Um, so politically, we have a constitution. We have, you know, United States. The, United, the federal government has certain limited, restrict, limited roles. The rest is left to the states. So each state can have its own state food, state bird, state flower. You can have your own festivals. You can, have your, you can even have your own language to some extent. I'm talking about oh, them, Doug. Forget the state birds. Nobody knows. Even in California, people don't know what the state bird of California is. And that's probably, I probably misspoke there. But you get my drift, right? You get my drift. State birds are state birds, right? Wouldn't it be wonderful, great, symbolic, moving if in the place of these uh, Confederate statues which are being yanked down? And by the way, I've completely got off on a tangent here. And, and Emma's kind of texts me, says, dude, I, I kind of think, you, you, you know, you come off a bit of a tangent. And I have. And this might not even make the edit. You think we've overrun. <laughs> same thing. Same thing. All right. Um, that some something could be put in its place because symbols, not state birds, nah, as far as I'm concerned, but, but I think statues and monuments can be incredibly uh, moving, important, and, and give us a real sense of place and time and history and also the future. Can the South put in those symbols which all Southerners, black or white, can actually rally around and say, yes, this represents us. I hope so. And I f in fact, if you look at some of the newer monuments in Washington, D.C., 
such as the Korean War Memorial and um, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. There's a couple of others where it's not been a monument to one individual. It's been a monument to the collective groups of people who have created change in our country. That is good. You know, we shouldn't be revering individuals in a place that is a democracy. Emma, you, you, you held your hand up. Yeah, no, just on, uh, I mean, I think we have too many statues, to be honest with you. Um, statuary is really boring public art most of the time. Um, I, why, you, we're talking about some of the, some really creative spaces. Um, why are we not taking the energy that we have and putting it into some random statue of some general that really nobody knows anything about. Um, and if it's not Robert E. Lee, they really know nothing about. Um, and putting it into building a park. There's nothing controversial about a park. Take that space, make it green, give a place for people to sit down and have a picnic. Everyone can have a picnic. Um, there is big... controversy about parks. Yeah, Trust I was going to say you're wrong. Park in, you're not going to make a controversy about anything. <laughs> I, I actually had the honor and privilege of having a statue built for a friend of mine who passed away a couple of years ago in our downtown. And, uh, the, and it was done based on that person's contribution to the, to the food and culture scene. He really was a catalyst uh, and a wonderful guy, Dave Hanley. And so we had a statue erected uh, of him, just his fedora and his a wine bottle, a good French wine bottle and a, and a plate. Uh, and it was lovely. But the conversation around even having that statue done was, um, you know, something that was quite involved and about does this person reflect something that is a shared value, you know, and there really was no protest to that statue because he had contributed in a positive, loving way to the community. That, so that, here's where I am with statues is that they are done purposefully. Right? They do send a message. They do honor or promote or uh, whatever. And so if the message that they send is one that is hurtful to people, you know, that is something, just because I can't see what is wrong with a certain statue because I don't know my history or I'm not from that particular experience, if, if people have to walk by it and be hurt by it, what are, we, what are we kind of doing there, right? And, you know, there may be a time, some time down the road where for some reason somebody wants that statue to change in 100 years or somebody better deserves to have that place on that, on that restaurant road than my friend's statue. I mean, we change as societies, right? We evolve, we change. Uh, but this, I think John Stewart said it best. The best description I've ever heard of this was years ago when he said, uh, when you drive through certain places in the South, and, I, and I've been to Houston and Atlanta, and I love the South and all that, but when you go to certain places in the South, it's like racist wallpaper. You know, we don't see it, but they see it. And to live and to feel valued in a space where everywhere you look reaffirms the sense that there are people who don't value your, your humanity. Uh, so, you know, I'll take it from the people who are hurt by these things, and I will listen to them. And I will say, if it communicates to you and your children a sense that you are lesser than, you're not a full human being, or you will be treated badly, or you should accept that there will be systematic racism and, and, and uh, hurt in your life, then that's crap. That shouldn't be there. What are we doing? <laughs> you know what I mean? So that's where I stand with this. Uh, it's, it's totally a fair point. It always amazes me when I drive around central London, if you are very conscious, the amount of Victorian generals there are actually are on plinths. Um, you can't quite say they're in the background, but we don't venerate them at all other than they're there. You know, I don't, we don't have the same reverence to them as, let's say, some 
neo-Confederates will have in the south of, of the United States, but they are there. And, and if you really open your eyes, there's a lot of Victorian generals of which no one knows what the heck they did. It was some siege of some uh, forgotten place in the Sudan oh, oh. or in Asia <laughs> and whatever. And, and it's actually quite shocking. One, one statue anecdote you might find humorous, and this was told to me by a Quebec City, they have those horse carriages and uh, they give history tours. <laughs> the wall of Quebec City, on the one side of the wall is a statue of Churchill, because apparently there was a very important uh, deal made during the war in the Hotel Frontenac in Quebec City. And then on the other side of the wall is a statue of Gandhi, because apparently <laughs> there wasn't the desire of the Churchill statue to have the Gandhi statue inside the wall. That could just be lore from Quebec City, but I, I always find it when we go through there, you know, we always uh, love to get the history tours because these statues mean something, right? Where they are, how they're erected, what they represent. Uh, and I think first we need to learn about them and understand uh, whether or not they should still take public presence. Um, There's a wonderful Emma. statue in Glasgow. Um, there are I've got two Glasgow statue stories. I know exactly if we're going what to you're going to say. Tie up Scotland and, uh, and, and the statue discussion. First of all, outside the Glasgow Museum of Art, there's a statue of a guy on a horse. Don't know who he is, but he's a guy on a horse. And about, I think, 10, 20 years ago, some students put a traffic cone on his head. And someone took it off, and then someone else put a traffic cone on his head. And someone took it off and then someone else put a traffic cone on his head. And they have now preserved the traffic cone. It is part of the living art of that statue that he, and you get postcards of it, you get fridge magnets of it. But my favourite statue in Glasgow, um, there was a cartoonist called Bud Neal. And he had uh, this uh, outlaw called Badjin, Rank Badjin, uh, which is you know, a very Scottish way of saying he's a rank bad guy. Um, and there's a there's a there's a um, a statue of his cartoon work, and I think that's really lovely because it's very very um, distinctive to the area, without it feeling like it's some sort of nationalistic statement. So after me uh, completely uh, ripping up uh, my my set questions, it's time for takeaways of. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. burrowcom slash ACAST. 
Right, uh, Doug Levy. Right, uh, I've said this on numerous occasions. You're always a thoughtful man. And c- have I mentioned, Doug, how great your hair looks today? Because <laughs> <laughs> if I haven't, I should, because it looks amazing. I wish I had hair. Um, so, so Doug, um, you're similarly uh, going to impress us all with a, a, an erudite and thoughtful takeaway of the last seven days, aren't you? Well, I hope so. Uh, My takeaway of the week is um, I want to uh, recognize the passing of one of my heroes, uh, a true American hero, uh, Congressman John R. Lewis, who passed away last uh, week uh, at the age of 80. He did a valiant fight against cancer. But most importantly, this is one of the people who led the truly led the civil rights movement uh, and made change. Uh, He was beaten almost to death on the Edmund Pettus Bridge and recovered from that and went on to be... Can I just say that bridge was only named Edmund Pettus in 1940. Yeah. And it's after, you know... Perfect example. And there's now a movement to rename it the John Lewis Bridge. But what my takeaway of the week is something that I'm really happy to see. Fairfax, Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C., has voted to change the name of Robert E. Lee High School to the John R. Lewis High School. And I think that is a a fitting tribute to somebody who was a champion of the U.S. Constitution and what our country stands for. And I tip my hat to Representative Lewis. I was honored to have spoken to him many times over the years, seen him speak even recently just an amazing man he is going to be sorely missed and we absolutely should be honoring his memory every single day you see doug you've done it again you see how can anybody like respond to that now but laurie gonna have to try well i will try so i lied a little bit uh, before the show when i told you i wore this shirt i'm wearing just because of that lovely tribute you gave to mothers and your takeaways right field recently Also, this is for the mothers who stood against what I'm happy to call the Gestapo forces in Oregon. Uh, It's as strong as a mother. (laughs) You can add another word if you need to after that. Uh, That image of those mothers standing the line between and still getting tear gassed. uh, You know, my takeaway of the week is this, right? Is that, uh, you know, there's that famous poem, first they came for them, but I'm not them, so I didn't really care. Then they came for them, I'm not them. don't care you know did those mothers need to show up and stand in line to protect people that they didn't know and maybe even some uh, some actors that they didn't support what they were up to in those protests in portland but they did and so my takeaway of the week is listen you know uh we cannot just because something does not directly impact us threaten us hurt us we cannot not use our power, whatever it is. And as mothers, I think our power is phenomenal for a lot of reasons. We cannot hold our power back when our power can help the powerless, can help the oppressed. Uh, And so I think that image of those mothers resonated around the world. It gives me goosebumps just talking about it. You know what, if mothers have to stand against this, this, uh, this Gestapo force that's building in the US and threatening to go into cities like Chicago and others, then let's do it mothers. But you know what? my takeaway of the week is we as humans have to, have to 
protect other human beings because you know what it's just uh, it's terrifying and i know we didn't get to it on the podcast in any depth but that is the single thing that concerns me most in the world right now more than covid is seeing people in in uh, camouflage going into u.s streets and 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 abusing protesters we cannot let this go so to the mothers uh you know i just want to give them all the love in the world and believe me i will lock arms with any mothers any day anywhere that i can to stop that kind of crap and I think what's beautiful is both of those takeaways really have something in common, don't they? They're both about the power of non-violent and power of non-violent in the face of massive excessive violence and the image that that shares and the, the power of that image. Uh, you know, from John Lewis on, on, on Pettis Bridge to those mothers standing between the protesters and, and the, as you say, the secret police, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that those there's so much in common there, and it's about that shared two visions of humanity. The strong and powerful, non-violent vision is the one that we must always, always get behind and champion. True, true, true words, sister. Um, so, uh, Emma Burnell, um, what's your takeaway? Theatre, writing something, good book. Uh, well. I- to be honest, I haven't written my 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 fourth draft of my play is taking its time. Let's put it that way. Um, I was I mean I'm I'm embarrassed now because I'm going to do a completely just self care takeaway, which is the opposite of what Doug and Laura have done. So apologies for being very intense. But here's the thing that I have done that has absolutely changed my lockdown for the better. I've had a really stressful week at work. And I'm usually someone that when I've had a bad day, it stays with me like a thug, like like a like that cartoon kid in peanuts, you know, it's just buzzing around my head. And I've taken to doing yoga. And I do as often as I can, I do a yoga class every evening. And just I can't look at my phone while I'm doing it. I can't do anything else while I'm doing it. I'm just doing yoga. I'm just stretching my body in different ways. And coming out of that, I can sleep, which I wouldn't have been able to do if I hadn't done it and I still had that fug around my head. And I mean, I can do things now that I could not do at the start and I know we're on video, so I'm gonna... Look at that. There's no way in March. Are you kidding me? I could barely do that in March. (laughs) So I am now in a really, really amazing place. And yeah, I think people have gone two ways in lockdown and I've gone that way, so I'm just loving and I have to admit I'm 45 I resisted yoga for 45 years thinking hippie bollocks not interested what a load of nonsense but the first time I did it um just after just before lockdown I did it in a physical actual class only got two classes in before lockdown so I could easily have dropped it but actually I've been doing it all on zoom I just, it was just a revelatory to me, just how, and yeah, I think it's one of the things that's really interesting about the journey that I've been on physically, because as long-term listeners will know, I've lost a lot of weight. I've lost, well, more than half my body weight. And I getting back in touch with your body and how it affects your brain and the ways, because I wasn't there at all. I had no concept of that at all when I was heavy. So it really is quite interesting for me, just as an, as an intellectual, as well as a physical exercise, to understand the ways that these things interact with each other, the emotion and the brain. 
and the body. And I think that we could all do with just having a little bit more understanding of that. And so I'm sure that those moms are going home and doing their yoga and centering themselves because they probably are massively stressed out after that terrifying experience. And I'm sure that you know everyone has a different way of doing it. But I do think that a little self-care is really important for campaigners and for people who want to make change in the world because you've got to be strong enough to do it. And that is something that's really important for everybody. Emma, may I just say, my, my was going to be a personal self-care takeaway too uh, until I saw those moms. So I think that's incredibly important as a message. And I've been morbidly obese in my life several times where my body feels disconnected from my soul. And whenever I do yoga, it forces you to connect the two back and, and it makes you feel so much better at handling stress instead of going for that bottle of wine or that vodka tonic do a little yoga first and no you'll get then the bottle of wine right (laughs) let the yoga do it then you get it i'm not hey you know i said my autobiography could be uh what did i say experience in a vodka drip or something (laughs) (laughs) anyway i just want to say that i love that you're doing that and congratulations on your journey and getting that point and in terms of pandemic response i heard a great line that said in lockdown you either hunk which means you get stronger and more fit or you chunk the pandemic passed. I've been chunking. I intend to move to hunking. My takeaway is um, something which is um, you just see all around you in my hometown of Birmingham. Trees. Now, I don't claim to be a big conservationist. I'm, I'm just kind of, or particularly a big lover of nature. I freely will admit I like human culture, which means architecture, tarmac and concrete i like those things and i like going from place to place from city to city and seeing a slightly different take on architecture or a different when you go to a different country a radically different take etc i love human human culture in its physical form um my hometown birmingham is really famous but well it's one of the, we say we're famous for no one outside of birmingham knows this but within birmingham um we have a lot of trees. I think there's more trees in the city of Birmingham than there are people. There's one million people that live here. So there's a lot of trees in the city of Birmingham. You can go to, like, say, like a fifth-story restaurant and look out to in South Birmingham in particular, and it looks like you're in a forest. Specifically, you look out to a district called Edgebaston and Harborn. It's incredibly leafy. And you go, where are the houses? Because these aren't just little trees. These are big buggers. Okay, they're not the redwoods of Northern California, Doug. Right. Um, But it's utterly beautiful. These are big trees going down streets. And it doesn't half soften that human environment. And remind you that even though you're in a city, you're still actually part of nature. And I went, I was in Highgate in London. Um, a few weeks ago and there was, a, there was a, a junction and this junction they built it around a tree this tree must be 300 years old maybe and somebody somebody at some point has had the, you know, the foresight to go mm, we can't be cutting this down even though it would be much easier for this junction to work right? this tree is as part of this neighbourhood as any house, as anybody, and it needs to remain there. So they built the road around it. And it was just a wonderful, quirky thing. 
So I'm just saying big shout out to trees in cities. They're awesome. That's me. That's my takeaway of the last seven days. Um, this episode, folks, has been freeform jazz because I had a whole load of questions, which I didn't even get to. There's going to be a whole load of questions about Donald Trump and his pivot on COVID. We didn't do that, Doug. But at least, at least you got on. At least you could express an American viewpoint on monuments, on civic monuments. Emma Burnell, we didn't talk really about Boris Johnson and his strategy of trying to keep uh, Scotland within the Union and the reason why uh, he went over, went up to Scotland this week. But Laura Babcock, at least we did do to death the Canadian Conservative Party. Folks, you can email us. You can email me. I'm royfield at gmail.com. Super simple email address. But Emma Burnell, I'm presuming that people, after your impassioned talk about all the things you've talked about today, will probably want to follow you on social media. How can that be done? I'm Emma Burnell underscore on Twitter. Laura Babcock, how about you? Laura Babcock on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram. And you were just about to mute yourself at the wrong point. You just uh, double and mute. Uh, Doug Levy, uh, sir, um, if people want to catch up with you on social media, how can that be done also? There are two ways. I'm on uh, uh, Facebook at uh, Doug Levy News, or um, I have a new newsletter that um, I'd love to have people subscribe to, douglevy.substack.com. Oh, that, that sounds awesome. And uh, don't bother following me because I can't spell. Right, that's us. It's midatlanticshow.com. We're on Facebook-ish. We're on Twitter-ish. But don't bother with that. Uh, but we're also on YouTube. So if you want to see how beautiful, how well coiffured some of the panellists are, Doug, right, you can uh, not only listen to this podcast, you can view it on YouTube. Take care. Be good to each other. And remember... Left to centre politics is right politics. Toodaloo. Bye-bye. Bye. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.